Well, before we open our, our Bibles uh, to Romans 3 and continue the series, I want to spend some time in, in prayer this morning, and I would ask you to join me, please, in praying for God's blessing and his guidance. Father, how thankful we are that you have completed a work that is necessary. Um, this need for righteousness is more significant than we realize, and to face you one day with all of our sins still recorded on our account without the necessary righteousness to be in your presence, to be accepted forever, would be a horrific horrific condition and a horrific moment, but through the Lord Jesus Christ and the shed blood of, of the cross, you have made a way for all sin to be forgiven and our records clear, and you have made a way for his perfect righteousness to be deposited in our eternal account. We marvel at that and praise you for it. And ask that on this day, these powerful gospel truths would would sink more deeply into our hearts, that we would be changed by them and strengthened and encouraged because of them. Our hearts today are heavy because of the, the violence that continues, the sin, the evil, the wickedness, and even yesterday we were reminded of how quickly Events can turn, and our prayers this morning for those deputies who were wounded uh, in that conflict yesterday, oh God, would you show mercy to them today and not only bring physical healing, but relieve their minds of that trauma and stress, and would you cause them to know that they are loved and respected and valued by this community? And would you give their medical teams wisdom for their ongoing treatment, particularly the one officer who remains hospitalized? Oh, oh Lord God, just let your everlasting arms uh, be powerfully placed around them and underneath them. We do not know the spiritual conditions of these deputies and their families, but we pray that you would meet them exactly where they are and draw them into your great love, and may they know the power of Christ and the power of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb. Father, this this valley needs that kind of Holy Spirit movement. We are far too self-sufficient and independent, and even some of that is rooted in our pride that says, I've got this, I can do this, I don't need God, I don't need other people, I don't need anything but my own ingenuity and such foolishness to live life with that independent and proud spirit. We ask that before we experience the fullness of your wrath and judgment that we would humble ourselves before you and call upon you for mercy that we might know the power of your forgiveness and cleansing and the gift of eternal life. Spirit of God, come to us now, please. There's so much care and turmoil and anxiety and doubt and uncertainty in our hearts. We are desperate for your presence 
So speak to us through your word. Speak to us in clear words of conviction and assurance of comfort and grace. And may your presence be the controlling influence in this time together this morning. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever received a gift that was perfect? I mean, a gift that was not only unexpected and undeserved, but was exactly what you would have wished for in a moment of fantastic dreaming. I think a lot of us as children had those moments anticipating Christmas each year. And when I was 12, uh, the packages under the Christmas tree with my name on them were few. My memory is there was one. And it wasn't very promising because it was small and it was rather soft and somewhat squishy. And I remember Christmas morning as we were gathering to open our presents that I eagerly ran down the stairs from my attic room to see what might have appeared in addition to that one gift during the night. I was way beyond you know, believing that a certain red and white clad individual might have arrived with something more that night. Uh, but uh, to much to my disappointment, there was nothing else under the tree. My sisters, and I have three sisters, had several gifts to open, and my one gift turned out to be a three-pack of tube socks, and you know those white kinds that pulled all the way up to your knee, and they had red stripes around the top, and I mean, they were cool and all, but I, I was trying so hard to be thankful and content, and I knew my parents worked very hard for the little that we had. Uh, it was a very modest upbringing, to, to put it politely, but the disappointment, to be really honest, was killing me. And then my dad said to my mother something like this, I think we're missing a gift. And he disappeared from the living room and in a moment returned but was awkwardly dragging a large box behind him. And as he came around the corner with that box, I began to read on the side, free spirit, boys, 10-speed bicycle. And I cried. And the memory even now pushes me to that brink, as you can see. I cried tears of joy, because of what I was receiving, I cried tears of relief because I thought, praise God, there's more than tube socks to be thankful for today. And I cried tears of conviction. Um, the gift so far exceeded my expectations that I could not contain those emotions. It was a gift of genuine sacrifice. To this day, I don't know how they afforded that bicycle. I had had a used bicycle prior to that, a banana seat. I mean, it, it was cool in its own right, but pretty beat up, and we replaced a lot of inner tubes uh, in those tires prior to this one. But it was, this, this gift was far more than I could have possibly deserved. And, and, and to that end, it was a gift of grace. But thirdly, it was a gift of love. For my parents knew that 12-year-old boys 
have something inside them designed by God to speed down neighborhood streets with that. And you know, when you go fast enough, the wind actually creates a little bit of a roar in your ears. We had no helmets in those days. I mean, you had a football helmet, but you weren't gonna wear that when you rode your bicycle. <laughs> and that the roar of the wind in your ears and friends beside you on your, in your bicycle gang, I mean, that, that was glorious. And my parents knew something in their soul said, this 12-year-old son of ours is wired for this. What a gift. You know, the gospel of God is that kind of gift. It is a gift of sacrifice for the Son of God laid down his life to purchase your salvation and mine. He paid a bloody price for it. It's also a gift of grace because you and I have no resources whatsoever to pay for something so extravagant. We could never earn it. And it's also a gift of love because your heavenly Father knows that the greatest delights of your soul can never be experienced as, uh, unless you possess his full forgiveness of your sins and you possess the full righteousness necessary to be in his presence. And that's what Romans is setting before us. I wanna ask you to open your Bible to Romans three with me and we're gonna resume our study uh, this morning, but we're gonna look at verse 27 and I'm gonna read a lengthy portion. I'm actually gonna read all the way to the end of chapter four, so hold with me for just a few minutes here um, as we work through this. We're, we won't have time to study this entire portion this morning. We'll break it up into a couple of parts, but we'll at least get a start. Page 941, if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. Romans 3, verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Then what becomes of our boasting? That is, if, if righteousness is a gift of his grace, which he had just said in the preceding verses, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Well, yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by his faith? By this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one of whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And here's the quotation from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or that is for the Jewish people, or also for the uncircumcised? We could say Gentiles. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Well, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inherit of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, and now he's going to quote from Genesis, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What a portion. What a passage. Now just to summarize kind of the big points up until now, remember in chapter one, Paul had said the gospel is the revealing of God's righteousness. And that righteousness is revealed in a couple of different ways. And the hard part of chapters one all the way through chapter two is that God is actually revealing his righteousness by his wrath. And his wrath is being stored up against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And, and when we came through that series of scripture Old Testament quotations that Paul was, was quoting, just stringing them together in chapter nine and making that absolute case that there's not one of us who is righteous enough As a matter of fact, we've all sinned and come short of the required glory of God. So every mouth is stopped. Everyone is accountable to God, and that is a frightful condition to be in when you realize that his wrath is being stored up against all of my personal ungodliness. So God's righteousness is being revealed against sin through present wrath, but there's greater wrath to come. But then he goes into a second revealing of God's righteousness, and that's where we were before we took two weeks off for Palm Sunday and Easter to look at the the resurrection account and the crucifixion. 
And that is where Paul said back in Romans 3, verse 21, that a righteousness which is separate from any work, separate from the law itself, is being revealed. And that is where the the gospel begins to take on this remarkable, this remarkable uh, manifestation of grace. It's a gift of grace. It's also a righteousness which is by faith. And that's the big point that we're going to consider this morning. Now, just to give you a a working definition, the big term that I want all of you to just get into your hearts, not not because there's going to be a quiz or a test at some point. It's not about defining terms. It's about life-changing truth. And justification, because that word justified is repeated in these passages, and there's another word, counted, you heard that multiple times as I read this portion of scripture this morning, that helps fill that out. But just to give you kind of a comprehensive view of what is involved in justification, it is an instantaneous act of God in which, number one, he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And, and not just that God has a thought like, well, I'll pretend like they're forgiven. No, the, he, he actively thinks of them as being forgiven because they are forgiven. And then secondly, r- justification is a legal declaration that God makes over sinners saying, you are no longer defined by your sin because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You're no longer guilty for your sin. You're no longer under condemnation. I declare you to be perfectly righteous in my sight. Now that's the big kind of like full definition of justification. So when you hear the word, we are justified by faith, you need to be thinking kind of of a courtroom scene uh, where you walk in as guilty and you are at the mercy of the judge to sentence you to whatever he deems is, is appropriate and just and yet he actually does something remarkable and because someone else paid the debt of your sin in full, he's actually able to declare you innocent and more than that to send you back into society as a, as a, as a citizen who has the full rights of of citizenship in this particular land. He declares you to be righteous. Justification is a powerful gospel truth. Now, in verse 27, Paul asks a question. Well, it becomes a boasting. Have you, have you thought of the kinds of things that we boast about? There are bumper stickers all around town that will, will reveal a little bit of this. And some of it is worth boasting about. I'm not like picking on everybody, but some of them humor me as well. And we're very used to things like this. Proud parent of an honor student, Riverside Middle School. I actually found that uh, on the internet or the interweb, uh, as we sometimes call it, right? Um, Riverside, that, that's a middle school where we used to live. I thought, well, isn't that interesting? So good memories there. Proud parent. My kids never went there, but not too far from where we lived and our church was. Proud parent of an honor student. And then I love things like this. Proud parent of a child whose self-esteem doesn't depend on minor scholastic achievements being displayed on a car bumper. (laughs) I thought, yeah, I should buy one of those. (laughs) Well, sometimes you should be proud of one another. There's a legitimate kind of pride and achievements and, you know, not an arrogant, sinful pride. Of course not. Pride is one of the seven abominations that the Lord mentions, a proud look. I mean, God despises that. It's an offense to him. But there's no room for 
pride when it comes to the gospel. Look at the text with me. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. And, and, and if justification is by grace, and it is because Paul's already said it, then there's no room for you or me to, to kind of walk into the scene and go, I know God did a lot, and I know Jesus laid down his life and shed his blood, but could I also talk about some things I've contributed to this? We don't contribute anything to this. It'd be like you walking into that court of law, standing before the judge with you know, a, a guilt that, would, that should put you away forever, and, and you've got this long list of offenses, and then you want to talk to the judge about the time that you, know, like you gave a nickel you know, to, your, to your kid's sister to go buy a, you know, one piece of hard candy, and he'd look at you like, you have lost your mind. You deserve to be locked away forever, and, and you actually want to like, tell me a story about giving a nickel away? There, there's no room for boasting. There's no room for publicly displaying our own religious achievements because those things don't matter. We've been hearing that and we're gonna hear more of that. No, Paul says they're excluded. Grace eliminates boasting because there's, it doesn't leave room for it. There's a second truth. Justification by faith excludes our works. Look at the text with me again. Justification is separated from all your works and mine, works of the law. Look at verse 27, by what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And, and what is that law of faith? Well, Paul says it. We hold, we believe, on the authority of God's word that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And that little word apart from is really important for us to just think about. There's no relationship to God's declaring you righteous and your works. You don't step into his courtroom under condemnation, under sin, and he kind of considers all the bad stuff that you've done in your life and then starts hearing the stories about giving nickels away and goes, oh, well, you know what? In consideration of a few of those good things that you've done and you, know, you seem like a nice guy who's really sorry now, I'll declare you righteous, go on your way. No, God's court doesn't operate like that. That declaration of, of righteousness has no relationship to the works of the law apart from it. There's a third great truth that's unfolding here. Keep looking at the word of God. Justification by faith actually includes all who believe. So it's exclusive of boasting because you know even on our best days and whatever religious achievements we, we might want to put forward, God says, nope, there's no consideration here. So it excludes our boasting. It, it excludes our works. But isn't this neat that it includes all who believe? Look at the text with me in verse 29. Is God the God of Jews only? Now, there were a lot of Jews who thought that. And in some respects, you kind of understand how they'd arrive at that conclusion because they were the ones who could say, we have the law and the prophets. We have Abraham as our father. We've got the story of the Exodus. We've got the great kings who go all the way back to David. And some not so great kings, but we've got the history, we've got the law, we've got the prophets, and we've got Messiah. But look at what Paul says. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Verse 30, since God is one. Now, we would, we would blow by this really quickly, and many of you would affirm it, but I just want to pause for a moment and consider this. God is one. There's a fancy term for that, monotheism. 
And it's affirmed all through the Old Testament and the New for that matter. And I think one of the things that Paul is doing here is reminding us of some of those Old Testament passages where God says, as he does in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It doesn't just mean he is a unity. We are Trinitarian, by the way. We sang of it in a couple of those hymns. Glory be to the Father, glory be to the Son, glory be to the Spirit. But we're not singing to three different gods. We're actually singing to one God. God is one. That's Paul's point. That's Moses' point in Deuteronomy 6.4. It's Isaiah's point and a couple of key passages there on the screen for you. Isaiah 44 verse 8. God himself said, it says, is there a God besides me? And he answers his own question. There is no other rock. I know not any. And that's not because God hasn't had enough time to explore you know, the deep corners of the universe. Uh, is there another God over here? Did, did I miss one on the other side of the galaxy? This solar system, that corner? No, he's saying there isn't another one. Or Isaiah 45 verse five, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. He's one. Now, since God is one, go back to Romans 3 and look again at verse 30. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Are you, are you getting the point there? The point is that because God is one, he's your only hope of justification. You don't have another option. You can imagine in a human court if there was only one judge in all the United States. I mean, they're backlogged enough as it is, right? But just imagine that you, you knew there's only one judge in the U.S. I want him to hear my case, and maybe he will have mercy on me. Maybe he will find it in his heart to acquit me of the charges. I mean, you'd stand in that line as long as necessary if, if you knew that it was life or death. Well, there's a greater reality that Paul is speaking of here, and that is we're all unrighteous, we're all under a sentence of condemnation, we're all in need of this declaration of righteousness that comes by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, and this is the one God who can do it. And one of the things that breaks my heart is that so many people on planet Earth today live with the delusion that they can just form their own God, pursue their own way to, to Jesus as if all roads lead to heaven. And God has said in multiple places, there's only one way into my presence that is through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. Not a way, a truth, a life. As if he's one of many options, it's the only one. And this is the only God who can justify you. Now how can we be sure that if this is the only God who would justify us, how could we be sure that he would, in fact, justify any of us? Well, and that's where Paul actually turns in chapter four to Abraham. And we wanna look at the example of Abraham. We'll come back to a part of this next week and, and maybe even take a little excursion into some just powerful truths and realities that are captured in the life of Abraham and his dear wife, his patient, godly wife, Sarah. Um, 
But for this morning, I want you to consider just a few things with me. First of all, uh, look at chapter four and verse one. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? That's the, that's the big question. Well, first of all, God justifies Abraham by faith, not by his works. We know that because of verse two. Look at it. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Well, Paul, didn't you just an- answer that question? Where then is boasting? It's excluded? Yep. And, and Abraham actually had nothing to boast about either. Even though to the Jewish people, I mean, he's like, he's one of the great ones. If you ask any Jewish person, like, so who, who are the heroes? Uh, they would name Abraham and Moses and David and probably a few others, but Abraham would be right up there. He's the father of the Jewish nation, just like we refer to George Washington as the father of our country. Nobody wants to disrespect George Washington. Well, some do in our day, right? But not Abraham. No, Paul says if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If there's something he's done that caused God to declare him to be righteous, well, that, that's a game changer. But clearly Paul disagrees with this thinking. Look at the end of verse two. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? So he's saying, let, let's read the Bible itself. Let's go back to Genesis 15, verse six, because that's the portion he's quoting. Abraham believed God and it, that is his, his act of faith, his believing was counted to him as righteousness. So God counts Abraham as righteous. Now let's dig in on this and explore a little bit. What, what does it mean that it was counted? Well, that is a term that, that speaks of keeping records. You accounting types love this type of terminology. Some of you keep records of all kinds of things, not just finances, but they're in order. And if we asked you to pull out, you know, your, your worksheet spreadsheet, I mean, you could account for every penny you've spent in the last 21 years. Glory to God. You love this kind of stuff. Well, that's the terminology that's appearing here. It, it has to do with keeping records of commercial accounts, but more specifically, it has to do with putting into an account There's a deposit that's being made. There's a credit that's being given. Now, what what does Paul say? He believed God and God credited something to him. And what is that? Righteousness. So, So Abraham believes God, takes him at his word, as we're gonna see in just a few moments, and he he, re- he receives a credit for that? Yeah, that's the point. Before we get there, though, look at, look at verse four. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted or put into his account as a gift, but as his due. We, we all get this, don't we? The one who works, and we're gonna compare this to the one who believes, well, the one who works anticipates the payday. And, and when you look at your bank statement, any of you get the old kind of fashion checks that you actually physically deposit in a bank somewhere? Like, we're done with that, aren't we? But I was just thinking, some of you are so young that you've never had the joy of that pay stub in your hands. And taking the, you know, in the old days, we would take checks to the bank and we would slide them across the counter with our ID and sign the back of those things. And we built relationships with bank tellers and they would say, how are you today, Mr. Brooks? And you would say, I'm doing great. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's been two weeks since I've seen you. And you would talk and share. And today, like even if you get a piece of paper, you take a picture of it and you send it off to 
the magic place where they make it appear in your bank. But when the direct deposit hits your account every week or two weeks or whatever it is, you don't say to yourself, wow, a gift. My employer is so gracious to me. You never say stuff like that. You might say things like, wow, look how much the government takes out of my hard-earned wages. <laughs> or you might say, I got to get another job. This is just not cutting it. But when, you, when payday comes and the credit hits your bank account, you say, well, of course, it should. I deserve that. That compensation is what I am due. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. If you were to work for this salvation, well, of course, of course God should justify you. You'd say, I'm, I'm due justification because I worked hard for it. But look at the text again, verse five. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted. The faith results in a credit of righteousness in his account. His account. Now, here's the difference. When you received an, receive an unexpected financial deposit in, in your bank account and something appears, you say to yourself, a gift. And, and this wonderful thing of Venmo and PayPal and Zelle, all kinds of options that are there. But I mean, this allows some really neat things to happen. And occasionally you see a deposit that's just, it just appeared. And if you actually know the person on the other side of it, uh, you, you would be stunned and surprised and you might say things like this. Hey, I, 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 I didn't work for this. I mean, what, what's this about? And if they say it's a gift, you would never dream of saying to them, no, take it back. I mean, let me do some work. Real gifts have no expectation or demand that there be work. And you would actually insult the person who gave you a gift out of their generosity and kindness and love if you said, no, I I'm gonna come to your house this Saturday, I'm gonna put in a hard 12 hours because that was so generous. You just undid the nature of the gift. And that's where Paul is headed here. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, and oh, how I love that. Look at that phrase in the middle of verse five. The one who justifies the ungodly, that's our God. And he doesn't do that reluctantly, begrudgingly. He does it happily. You see, you, you work, you get compensated, you believe. Amazingly, you get righteousness. Now, let's go back to the life of Abraham. Here's a third part. Now Paul's gonna quote Psalm 32 and, and tie that into what Abraham experienced. God actually blesses Abraham apart from works. Look at verse six. Just as David also speaks. So what was happening to Abraham is just like what David was writing about in Psalm 32. You catching that? So God did this. God justified Abraham by his faith. He counts Abraham as righteousness because he believes. And, and just as that was happening, that's what David is talking about in Psalm 32. And some of you need this truth this morning to encourage and even console your heart because your guilt and sin looms larger than the gift of grace. What does David speak of? Well, the blessing of the one to whom God, look at it, here's our word, counts righteousness apart from works. Let's take a little excursion into Psalm 32 and notice three things. First of all, God credits people like David, like you and me, with a perfect legal standing that satisfies the moral requirements of his law. See, if you're really honest about your sinfulness, you know you have one issue to deal with, like how can I really be forgiven and cleansed and, and re remade? 
But you, even if all that's taken care of, you still have to be perfectly righteous to, to dwell in God's presence forever. Well, well, here's how it happens. God does this work and blesses you with that legal standing when you believe. And so here it is again, the deposit. Look at the second thing here, verse seven. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. God forgives all your lawless deeds. We've talked about this on many occasions, but let me remind you, sin always creates a real debt. It's not just a theoretical offense that happens between you and God when you sin or between you and another person. There's a a real debt that's been created. And the thing about sin debt is you can never actually pay that debt off. You, You can try to make amends, you can take steps of reparations, but you can't actually pay that debt off. When you and I say to God and even to one another, will you forgive me, there's a part of that transaction that is dependent upon the generosity of the offended party to forgive that debt, to eat it, if you will. And and when God invites us to confess our sins, he knows that he has to eat the debt. And for Christ's sake, he does. Some debts will accumulate severe penalties, whether of monetary interest or legal penalties. You know what's remarkable about God's forgiveness is that when he forgives a person, he releases them from the debt fully. He releases them from the penalty that they deserve. We we looked at this earlier, but in case you weren't here for a couple of the previous messages back through chapter two and three of Romans, how does he do that? How could he be just and, and release your sin debt? He does it because he asked Jesus to pay it, and Jesus did in his blood. That's why we love the cross. That's why we sing songs about a bloody, brutal death. Because sinners like us look at that and say, yes, the debt is paid. What a blessing that God forgives all of our lawless deeds. And then number three, again, as he, as he quotes Psalm 32, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Can you believe that God would be so kind as to cover your past record? Now here's the irony. Many of us work really hard to cover our sin. I don't want you to know it, and you don't want me to know your sin. And so we're always kind of of always walking around like covering it up. And some of you live life like this every day, and you're you're always afraid. Are they gonna find out what I'm really like? Well, I I better use spiritual words when I go to church today, because I don't want anybody to think that I'm as bad as I am. I better carry a big Bible into church. I need to mark more of it because I was sitting next to that one guy in church last week and every page has highlights and red marks and notes written in the margin. I gotta get with it. Even those efforts are, I gotta cover my sin. Somebody in love comes to you and says, can we talk? There's a real significant sin issue that's emerged and and your spouse loves you enough to bring that to your attention. You're like, what are you talking about? I, I don't have a sin issue. You're covering it. So we get it, it's human nature to cover our sins and God himself knows that we don't wanna be parading our ugly stuff before people and in his love though, he doesn't, ex- he doesn't cover it with an excuse, no he exposes it, brings conviction, cleanses, forgives and then says, and now we're putting this thing to bed so to speak. I'm not bringing it up anymore. And God himself, we've looked at this in recent weeks too through some other passages. We sang a couple of lines of this very truth this morning that he remembers not our sins against us anymore. Oh, that's grace. That's such kindness. So he forgives 
He credits, he forgives, and he covers. Paul says, just as, what was going on with Abraham is just as David wrote of a blessing. Have you experienced this blessing? Do you, do you know the power of, of God's work in your heart in this way? Where he removes all of that ugly sin and spreads his beautiful cover of grace over it and says, we're not going back there. Not talking about that anymore. I'll never bring it up again because it is, it is cleansed away by the blood of Christ. Colossians talks about the, the charges that were written against us because of our sin have been nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. Have you experienced that? Do you have that confidence and peace this morning? You can. If you, like Abraham, like David, like thousands and thousands of others, would believe that God is able to do what he promises, and part of what he promises is forgiveness. Well, let's go back to Abraham here for a moment. So we've seen that God justifies Abraham by his faith, not by his works, that he counts Abraham as righteous, so Abraham gets that credit in his account of perfect righteousness. God blesses Abraham apart from those works and those things that David captured in Psalm 32. But then finally, here's a powerful truth for us. And verse nine asks the question, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, and then he explains how it was counted, and he talks about it was prior to Abraham's circumcision. What's all that about? Well, you know what? Let me come back to that in just a moment. But the point he's driving at is that God justified Abraham several thousand years ago in order that people like us coming after him would say, well, if there's hope for that guy who was a pagan idolater when God called him out of a land called Ur, and began to speak to him and give him promises, if God would justify him, then maybe he would justify us. Exactly. That is the point. Now let's go back and look at a couple of things because this is, this is important. And it's just the last three or four minutes that, that we're gonna spend here this morning. We'll resume some of this next week. You know, Abraham was born in Ur. I mentioned that a moment ago. If you do a little research, you can find that um, the particular time that he was born, and it's probably uh, in, in the 2100s BC, so 4,000 years ago plus some. Uh, but Ur was actually experiencing a time of great pre- peace and prosperity. It was probably the high point of, of the particular city's existence. And 100 years ago, there were archaeologists who did some quite remarkable excavation in that city and that surrounding area and, and uh, spent quite a bit of time at one of the ziggurats, which was a, not just a, a center of activity, but it was a center of worship. And the worship of that particular temple was dedicated to the moon god, Nana. Now, I know many of you are like, ah, oh, moon god. Uh, probably was the god that Abraham at least grew up hearing about, if not worshiping outright. He's part of a family of pagan idol worshipers. You know that if you go back and you read through the story and life of Abraham, that even his, his grandson's generation um, was still worshiping idols. Uh, and when Abraham sends his servant Eliezer back to find a, a wife for Isaac, his son, and he returns to Abraham's family, there are some relatives there that he encounters, and as you learn more about them through the, the, the story of Abraham's family as that unfolds, it actually comes out at one point that Laban, who is his, I think it's his great nephew, um, 
has household gods and when one of his daughters steals them, it's a big scandal. Maybe we'll have time to look at that a little more closely next week. My, my point is this. Abraham is a man who is in need of grace just like you and I are people who need grace. He didn't bring some really impressive spiritual resume into this thing before God justified him where God could say, oh wow, you have worshiped me, the true God, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. I will justify you. Oh, you, oh wow, you have a track record of, and family history of, of great religious achievements. I will justify you. Oh, he's got all kinds of religious achievements. It's just the wrong God. It's a false God. It's a false way of faith. No, God just has mercy on this man, uh, appears before him, speaks a word of promise, and in that moment, remarkably, Abraham goes, I believe. I believe you, God. I'm willing to take your word as sure. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm willing to believe you and relocate my family from Ur of the Chaldees to a land you haven't even shown me yet. And beloved, that's the kind of faith that not only brings you into a personal relationship with God, but it's the kind of faith that God will honor and bless and he will multiply his blessing as you believe. As we close this morning, I, I wanna bring you back to that place that we have been to before, that the Christian gospel is not a message of believe enough, perform enough, commit enough, be faithful enough. No, the Christian gospel is simply believe as you can, imperfect faith, small faith, weak faith, childlike faith, whatever your faith is, you place all of it in this God and specifically in this Savior, Jesus Christ, that saving faith. Because he justifies apart from your works, not even your faith is a work. God justifies pagans. And God justifies really self-righteous people. God justifies all who come to him in faith. So what does God's work in Abraham show us? That God justifies all who believe without consideration of their works. I'd ask you to bow your heads with me, please. We're gonna pray together. This gospel of the righteousness that comes by grace, through faith, for Christ's sake alone, is a gift that is perfect in every way. It's better than my 10-speed bicycle at Christmas long ago. And you know that. But if some of you were honest right now, you would say, I actually love my bicycle or my material possessions or my job or my social standing or even the reputation I've been very careful to build. I, I love those things more than I love Jesus. Oh, are you really gonna forfeit your eternity for a temporary Pleasure, this gift of love and righteousness as we sang at the outset of the, the service in the lines of in Christ alone is very often scorned by those that Jesus came to save. Are you scorning this gift this morning? Oh, I hope not. Some of you would say, I, no, I'm not, a, I'm not a scorner. I'm just, I, I'm uncertain. There's a little skepticism in my heart. I understand that. Many of us do. We've been there. I'd like to invite you to, to just spend a little more time reading and considering and, and perhaps you'd like to talk with one of us. I, I would love to find a time just to sit down together and hear your heart, hear your questions, talk with you a little more and, and maybe point you uh, again to the word of God that tells us about this remarkable gift of grace 
And if you're with us this morning, you're saying, Danny, that's where I am. I would like to get together and talk. Would you just, while heads are bowed, eyes are closed, nobody's looking around, I'm not gonna embarrass you or single you out. I just wanna make a little mental note, but if you'd say, I would like to talk with you or somebody else later, would you just raise your hand that I could see it? And, and I'll try to make a, a point to connect with you right after the service. Say, Danny, yep, I, I'd like to know more. This gift is not only unexpected and undeserved, but it exceeds what we might have wished for in our moments of most fantastic dreaming. You cannot really conceive the blessing of knowing that your sins are no longer counted against you, that you've been forgiven all, and that it is covered. Will you believe? What are you relying on for your salvation this morning? Where does your faith rest? You can know today that your legal standing before God is secure, that you really have been counted righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Your part in mine is simply to believe. Father, as we pause to meditate on your word, we ask that your spirit would speak with clarity, that he would draw us so powerfully and compellingly that like Abraham, we would be drawn out of every false way of faith, every pagan or idolatrous alternative, whether it be actual false gods or even gods of our own making, things that stand in the way of knowing you as you are. And we ask, Lord, that you would make this extraordinary gift of love, this gift of righteousness, so precious to us that we not only rest in what you have done, but we are compelled to speak of it with others, to tell, to proclaim. So continue that good work in us that we may be instruments of service for you in the great gospel mission of this world. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.